Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. Okay. Well, last week was I it was exhausting, wasn't it? I mean, honestly, by the end of that, I was I was I mean, you could probably tell by the end of the of the when I listened to it, it's like, well, you sound really like slow and almost tired. Like it was a day of celebration, but, but I also, one, it was a long, it was a, it was a long episode for sure. But secondly, I think we, we often miss the sadness of the nation of Egypt when the people of Israel were leaving there. They, listen, I know that they were masters. Uh, the Egypt, Egyptians were masters and the Hebrews were slaves. And I know that there was a terrible connection, but it's, it's still a connection. And many of them had uh, experiences with multiple families and they saw those families in deep sorrow because the, their children had died. All the firstborn had died. Not just the firstborn, but even even servants that weren't Hebrews that were in the household died. Other servants that these that Hebrews would have known who they worked alongside of died. It was it was it was a sad day, and I think sometimes we miss that. We miss it because it's like, yes, the Lord delivers, and and everybody loves a good delivery story. Everybody wants to be the one. The Lord has released me. The Lord has revealed the enemy. He's killed them off, and now I am free. I am free. I'm free, and everybody can cheer. Break every chain. Break every chain. And it's like, yeah, that's a great song. And man, it made a great comeback there, I don't know, ten, five, six years ago. And everybody was singing it. And it's it's a great song. I, I get it. I do. I get it. We all love a good delivery story. But they were delivered by a God of life. And they were delivered through an angel of death that doesn't come from that God. Like it, it, there's, there was just a lot there. I hope you caught some of that. I know, I know for me, it's like the more I review it, the more intense the emotional layers become because there's just, there's just a lot of pain in a breakup of a relationship. And there were a lot of relationships there that, that literally it, it was, they were over immediately. There, like you didn't even, yeah. There's a lot there. There's a lot there to work through. And I, I hope you took the time to do that during this week. And maybe the next time you hear somebody talk about how how happy and, and joyful it was for that particular, uh, you know, celebration of God's deliverance, let's remember it, there was also a, there was a heaviness in that nation. And the amount of time that it took in chapter 12 is, you know, like I said, at least half a month and maybe, maybe longer. And did six hundred thousand men, women, and children, old men and women, old I'm mean, old men and old women, plus servants, plus foreigners, plus people who had converted and decided to follow Yahweh during the plagues. Like there's there's a lot of people here. I'm gonna guess around three million, but honestly, I've heard numbers as low as ten to twenty thousand. And frankly, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fight you on this. I'm just not. I. I I know people. I know. I know of people who write papers on this, and they they have picked a hill to die on. This is not my hill. So you pick a number. I want to learn the lessons of freedom, because I'll tell you. I'll tell you something that's really uh, gonna. Be, I think I, I might hammer this home a few times. <laughs> Bob's Bob's like, oh, oh, I can't wait to hear this. Yeah, I know you're gonna hear it a lot, Bob. So I think a lot of times people will trade in one master for another and they call it freedom. No, I, I pause on purpose because so many do it, right? We do it, we'll just put it simply, a lot of people do it just in their jobs. They get tired of one master and they literally just turn themselves over to another. Uh, and often, you know, they'll do this eight or ten times in their lives. <laughs> I'm sorry. Bob's like, you mean like the guy who's been at like seven or eight churches? I'm like, oh, you mean me. Yeah, that's true. 
No, it's true. When I, when I would, when I took the God's invitation to walk away from ministry and to just hit the road and really untangle myself from all that ministry was, I did have an incredible pattern of coming under the same type of leadership over and over again. Now, I also think, based on my evaluation of my life, I also was wanted by the same types of leaders over and over again. And in a hierarchical system, they know, I think, sometimes intuitively and sometimes intellectually, they know we need somebody who actually likes people on our staff. And that would be me. I just, I am wired for people. Hardwired for, like, like God-given gift for people. And I know that. So it was very nice to be wanted and, and paid to do what I love to do. But over time, either I became a threat because, in essence, there were a lot of people who really liked me because I liked them. And those in leadership didn't really like them. Not that they were unfriendly or unkind. They just weren't wired to be people, 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 people. I'm sorry, those of you that are listening to this are probably thinking, I know who he's talking about. I'm really, this is very general. I, I'm i just ex- explaining my experience in, in life. And now being untangled from it all, I look back and I see, all right, yeah, I was literally, I kind of just traded one master for another. And, and granted, I think they each got better. <laughs> but ultimately... Ultimately, they all did the same thing, uh, which was either either get rid of me or bring me to a place where I had to walk away because if I didn't, I was denying who I was or I had I would have had in essence to put on so many chains that I would never be able to be free. The only time the only exception to that was I did have one job where I do believe I had real freedom and relationship with my, quote, boss. But within that circumstance, a new boss was inserted over the top of both of us, and a new hierarchical system was in place. And I I immediately jumped ship. I was just like, nope, not, I am not playing this game. I found out years later that that actually came as a shock to the new guy who was put in over the top. They really thought I would just continue to conform and submit. But there was something inside of me that was like, nope, no, 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 I'm not going backwards. I, I don't, I mean, it'd be a longer story. You could ask him, ask him about it if you're interested and I'll tell you more about it. But anyways, I just, I, what am I doing, Bob? I am trying to get myself back here into the story. Oh yeah. So I just know a lot of times people will leave one master for another. And God doesn't want that to happen, right? He's he's looking at a nation of, of his people who he created to be free, who he designed to be his representation on earth, who he pulled out of one man's lineage. And he said, you are going to become a nation. You are going to infiltrate the world to the point where the, you know, the promised land is going to be so covered with you that those that you that are there now will literally be forgotten. They're just, in essence, their cultures are going to be wiped out by the culture of heaven, which interestingly, probably, if you know the culture of heaven, wouldn't have destroyed who they were. They would have accentuated and honored to the point where they would have been more of who they were designed to be than they ever thought they could be. And he says, all that's going to happen because you as a nation are going to grow and multiply to the numbers of the sand of the of the seashores, sand on the seashores, stars in the sky. There was a lot. There's going to be a lot of you. That was always the plan. From at least here in the first covenant, always the plan. Overwhelm the world with a with millions and millions and millions of people who love me and follow me and and live under the culture of freedom and love and joy and peace. But now he's got a nation of slaves who's who at this point have probably sent 
we'll call it 200 years under abject slavery, who voluntarily gave up their position and authority in exchange for comfort and um, convenience, which many of us do. So let's not play those games like, oh, I would never. Yes, you would. Yes, you would. So, so let's, yeah. You, and a matter of fact, a lot of you need to examine your life right now because you already have. And you're in a place where you have given up freedom in exchange for, for comforting and, and convenience. So blah, blah, blah. Let's not point fingers too much at the, at the Israelites or, or Hebrews for doing this. And God knows I've got to draw, draw out of them Egypt, not just draw them out of Egypt. And it's a long process. God understands this. Now, he knows that instantaneously people can be free, but if you don't go through the process of freedom, you won't maintain freedom. God is always a God of the journey. He's always been a God of the process. Even if he instantaneously gives you healing, the, the goal of that healing is to process is the process of sanctification and true depth of healing. I've seen this happen so many times. People get healed at a conference, and they go home, and three days later, the, the, thing, the thing returns. And so many, and you can say, well, then God never healed them. No, God did heal them. I was there. God did heal them. But they immediately started to, to rehearse the old ways again. And you reap what you sow. You get what you focus on. You become what you focus on. And they focused on what they used to be, and they immediately became what they used to be. And it's, it's, very, it's a long journey. You can talk to people who have been through two, three, or four, you know, marriages, and they say, well, I keep picking the same person because you haven't done the process of truly freeing yourself and understanding what's going on. It's, it's a deal. It's a long freaking deal, and God knows this. And so, the, you know, the, <laughs> this first day, this first day in freedom, God's like, we need to redirect your focus from that of a slave to that of freedom. And that, now now catch me on this, to get freedom, you need to focus on God. Oh, man, there are so many people who, when they think about God, they think of of a master who's, who's enslaved them or will enslave them if they go under his, his rule. They think of a God who will control their thoughts and control their behavior and control their circumstances. And then when he doesn't, they go to him and they freak out and they cry out and they wail and they weep and they beat the floor. And they're like, God, do something for me. You're the only one that can do this. I mean, they are slaves. They act just like slaves. And God's like, I don't want my people to behave like this. So I want you to redirect your focus. You're coming out of slavery. Focus on me. Why? Because I'm your new master and you will do what I say. No, because if you focus on me, you'll be free. Oh, man, it's huge. This is huge. Huge. So many people miss it. Unfortunately, because most of the people that are teaching it want you to be slaves because they want you to do what they tell you. They want you to to make them the surrogate God in your life so that you just do what you're told and they can control your behavior and your finances and your circumstances. And then when you don't obey, they can say, well, anything that bad to ha- anything that's, that's bad in your life is because you won't submit to more slavery. It's honestly, it is a sick, sick, cycle but on it but it usually comes from this belief system that says god is your new master god is a god of freedom good grief if he wasn't he wouldn't have done what he what what he did he wouldn't he wouldn't have asked moses to go and free his people oh okay 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 uh i think i got pre did i get preachy a little preachy. I'm sorry. I, I I get passionate about the freedom of God and about the goodness of God. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, it doesn't bring in any money, but I am passionate about it. 
I don't mind. I'm currently working at a liquor store, so I really don't mind doing other work for the opportunity to do what we're doing here in this podcast. And and I know that it will be around for hundreds of years, and maybe someday it will be really popular. Maybe someday it will strike a chord with people, and they'll be like, wow, this has been around for a long time. Because I find that. I find theologians that believe this and have been teaching on this for years, and I think, wow, how come I was never exposed to these people? Why? Because I was part of a slavery system that said that God is a God of control, and and I am God's man, and therefore I will control you. <laughs> Welcome to the hierarchy of the church. Oh, Bob, you just went too far. You crossed the line. You're right. Okay. On with the story. We're in chapter 13. They didn't borrow things when they left. But for many, I believe for at least a week before they left, the Egyptians poured out on them gifts. Gifts and provisions that for some of them was like, uh, what do they call it? Reparations. Egyptians might have felt bad, guilty. They might have said, you know what? You deserve to be paid for all the work you did. Couldn't have, couldn't have done this without you. And for others, it was fear. We're afraid that your God will kill us, so we're going to bless you, and we're going to give you everything we own so that your God will leave us alone. Like, there's all kinds of reasons why they got all this stuff, whatever you want to call it. But generally speaking, we would just put it under the idea that it's the favor of God. God just gives you favor. I I can't explain it. I can't. It happens to me many times. There are intense circumstances that I go in, and yet because of the atmosphere of heaven that I, I carry particularly, I can walk into that same circumstance, and somehow it, it, it changes things. And, and when, the, when the Hebrews walked, into their, walked up to their Egyptian masters and said, listen, can, can you give me some gold and silver? God has asked me to ask you for gold and silver. They were like, oh, absolutely. I can't wait to bless you. It's pretty massive. It's pretty awesome. And this provision was was made for the servants and the Jews so that when they left, they would have money. <laughs> I mean, there's really no other word for it. They would have money. Why? Because, because if you remember, I know this is a long time ago, but in season two, we talked about, I think it was called, why do I remember this episode? It was about Esau. Esau and his family line or something like that. It was it was late in the story. I want to say in the late 40s, maybe episode 50, somewhere around in there. Esau, we, we talk about the Edomites, which are the, relate, the, the, the people who are related to Esau, came from his family line. And they were, they, it has been at that point discovered or surmised by archaeologists and 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 uh, others who study that ancient world, that literally the Edomites were a huge nation, but they didn't have any cities. They literally had tent worlds, a cities, city, I guess cities, they'd be cities of tents, huge, huge swaths of land, but no one had it, no walled cities. They could pick up and go at any time, but their, but their tents weren't, Places that you and I would consider uh, like, oh, ew, uh, they were, they were in, they were beautiful tents. They had many luxuries, but the Edomites were not, were not a nation that was looking for uh, opportunities to, in essence, settle down. They liked the idea of roaming much like Esau, who was a hunter. And they could move in and out of their tents. And if they wanted to, they could move with their tents. It was, it's, it's a fascinating study. And I think along the same lines, the Lord was like, you're going to need provision because at this size of a tent city, and I believe we're talking about 3 million people, but again, I'm not going to die in that hill. But you're talking about this many people, you're going to need trade agreements, there will be merchants who will be coming in and out of this group of tents 
this massive amounts of tent. Let's just say half, you know, it'd be less than half, probably a third. Let's say it was a million tents. Have you seen some of the unfortunate, but still true, um, like some of these tent cities that have been erected for um, immigrants slash those who are fleeing uh, world world wars and stuff. They're massive, but I don't know if they're a million, but imagine a million tents. Well, everybody just can't run to the grocery store and buy some yeast for the for the next week. You literally need trade agreements with merchants in and around the trade routes. You need people who are willing to come find you along the road and bring you the goods that you need. So everything they got from the Egyptians would provide for them what they need probably for a while, let's call it a couple weeks. But you didn't have enough, you know, you couldn't you couldn't all rent a 26-foot U-Haul and drive it like you had to take what you could on the carts that you had. That was it. So there was a lot going on when you left to figure out life as a free man. And God knew that they were going to need provision, and the Egyptians wanted to provide for them. Whatever their motive was is fine. God knew it was going to happen. He's like, just ask them for money. Trust me, they are ready to give. And they did. The provision was made also for people who converted to Judaism. And there would have been a lot of them. Foreign slaves, uh, Egyptians, uh, people that were born uh, of the foreign slaves that were owned by the, the Hebrews. They, they made provisions for all of them to come and join them. Tradition says that Moses and Aaron stayed by the palace, not in Goshen, the night that the, that the final plague hit. Actually, probably were there for the last several plagues because they knew that Pharaoh would call on them quickly, and they didn't want to be hard to find. Tradition also says that Moses made sure that palace servants knew where he was staying so he could be found quickly when Pharaoh would demand his presence. This wasn't a, um, from what I I guess in my mind, it's like, well, if, if tradition says that, you could say, well, we don't know if it's true. You're right, we don't. But in my mind, it fits the character of Moses in that he was a humble man, and I think he had a passion for the, for the Egyptians to not suffer. I think he understood what Pharaoh was opening up his people to, and he understood that Pharaoh could shut that door anytime he wanted, and he wanted to move quickly. He didn't want to, you know, somebody to have to travel several hours you know, by horseback or chariot to Goshen to find Moses, to pick up Moses, to travel two more hours back so that he could stand before Pharaoh. He wanted something to happen quickly. And I think, again, Pharaoh um, released these people with no condition because he wanted them out of the country and he didn't want any conditions on them because he didn't want to open up the door to any more plagues. He wanted it to end. He wanted it to end. The sadness, the grief, the pressure, the mutiny, possible mutiny, the the death threats, whatever. Like it was way, it finally broke him. And then we get to chapter 13. So these guys are out and about. And it's their first day of freedom. And again, I think it took probably 24 hours for them to finally all get out of Egypt. And now they have to disseminate information like they can't make a phone call or make a make a facebook post or 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 send an email like like they need dissemination of information on a massive scale which takes time so god says listen i need you to consecrate for me every firstborn male the first offspring of every womb among the israelites belongs to me whether human or animal Further on in verse 11 or 12, sorry, of chapter 13. If you, if, uh, sorry, not if, sorry, verse 12. You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. 
In the days, verse 14, in the days to come, when your son asks, what does this mean? Verse 15, this is why the Lord, this is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of the first of my firstborn sons. And it will be a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead to the Lord has brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. God's saying, listen, I need generations to come out of you to recognize and remember that you are free people. And it's a symbolic consecration, a circumstance, uh, circumcision is symbolic. It's a symbolic sacrifice and dedication of the firstborn sons of every family and the firstborn of every animal. It's symbolic. It's not designed to be real. Very similar to the life of Abraham. When Abraham went up, and you remember this from season two, if not, please feel free to to go listen to the whole thing. But generally, Abraham brought Isaac to be sacrificed because Abraham expected to have to do that. Every deity that he had ever been associated with, and if you remember, Abraham's father was the head priest under Nimrod, and every deity, many of which Abraham's father actually invented, every deity eventually... eventually required a firstborn son to be sacrificed. And Abraham willingly was, you know, did it because he thought, well, God will also raise him from the dead. And that was a that was a window that evidently was was again not an unusual thought for someone to have that God could raise someone from the dead. And within that culture, God was like, all right, you know, Isaac's whatever, 30 years old Isaac expects to be sacrificed. That's why he crawled on the altar. He was like, God, I know what's, uh, he's like, Dad, I know what's going to happen, but listen, bind up my hands and feet because I probably will resist when the flames hit me. But he also had confidence that God would raise him from the dead. And what did God do? He shut down the whole thing. He gets him to the edge and he shuts down the whole thing, not because he's some sort of sadistic mind game playing God who wants to see if, if you'll really sacrifice your son. No, he does it because he's like, listen, I want you to know I don't require human sacrifices. I will never require human sacrifices. Here, he's speaking about dedication, a symbolic thing, a sign on your hand, a symbol on your forehead. This is why you dedicate your firstborn children, sons to me. It is not meant to be a sacrifice. You'll see it again when it's referenced in chapter 22, verse 29. He talks about the, the, the release or the, the sacrifice of firstborn sons. Now, did, did Israel ever sacrifice children? Yes. And don't be afraid to admit that. When you're talking to somebody who you know happens to know history, and they say, well, Israel sacrificed firstborn their children to to their god and you you start don't please don't freak out there are many who do no they oh god would never god did god's word says and then they throw out these verses at you and you're like oh oh no god said sacrifice your firstborn god said and then and then and then and then, and then your your whole faith starts to fall apart because in essence you were just doing what you were told And you were told to say that God never requires human sacrifice. You're right, he doesn't, but it sure looks like it if you don't understand the context. And they did sacrifice their children to a God. They did burn them or drown them or kill them in the name of God because they followed idols. You see that in in the, you know, we'll see it during the season that we deal with the book of Judges, but there are all kinds of, layers of them worshiping idols and then going back to God and then worshiping idols, going back to Yahweh. And it is seen through archaeological history. And they say, see, Israel had no idea who they were worshiping. (laughs) And you can't blame them for coming to that conclusion. It's like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. It's, It's sad. And so God's like, listen, I need to draw out of you a different focus, not toward one of a master, but toward one of freedom. 
And so I need you to, I, I need this day to be a day of dedication. And that's what happened. Mark your firstborn of all types. And this is a way to remember what? The story of freedom. The firstborn sons of Egypt were killed because they were dedicated to the angel of death. The firstborn sons of Yahweh are going to live and they will be symbols of freedom for all the world to see. <laughs> I actually like that. I might have to listen to that again. That was really good. I'll have to remember that someday. And he's like, when you get to the promised land, you're going to celebrate this each year for seven days. That's pretty awesome. Seven days. God loves a good party. He's like, I want to party for a week. And at the, you know, during that time, you're going to sacrifice what the firstborn of every livestock. And, 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 and that included everything except what? Donkeys. Donkey. <laughs> every time I say that word, I think of uh, Shrek. Donkey. So the donkeys are non-kosher animals. Um, they were to have a lamb sacrificed in, in its place. So if you had a firstborn donkey, you sacrificed a lamb instead. Why? Why was the donkey an exception? It is said that they were an exception because this was a way to honor the animal for being the main beast of burden for the trip out of Egypt. Donkeys were incredible beasts and are. And they're not always little. A lot of them are as big, if not bigger, than some horses. They are incredible animals of burden, beasts of burden. And it's later seen that donkeys become like a major source of national income and trade for the nation of Israel. If you go back to season one, early on, like within the first four, actually, I think the first actual episode on the life of Saul which we deal with briefly before we get into the life of David, we see that Saul's family actually were donkey experts. They were donkey uh, breeders. They had the Rolls Royce, the Mercedes Benz of donkeys in their, in their heritage, which is why Saul was sent out with a servant to go find a couple that had been lost, not because his dad was mad, but because it was that important. He was like, son, if you lost them, you will get them. We need those things. Those, those family lines are vital to our business. And all royalty rode on donkeys. Ro 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 royal royal all royalty rode on donkeys in Israel. Now God leads them the way that they lead, He leads them here in verse 13. Um it says in verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though it was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. I love this phrase. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. <laughs> See, God leads them away from battle. Because war was not in his plan. <clears throat> you said, but it's a land of the Philistines. And we all know those are the bad guys. Well, we know, oh man, they worship Dagon, the fish god. They're, they're evil people. They become a thorn in Israel's side for years to come. If God had just led them to it. No, that was never the plan. God didn't want to kill the Philistines. He could have. Because guess who was ready to kill them? Everyone coming out of Egypt, they were all ready to die, all ready for battle. We will kill our, we will die for our new master. We are free, free slaves, but we know how to survive. We know how to fight. We've lived, on, lived under powerful rulers, makers of laws that are meant to destroy us. And we have never, we have not, you know, we have not bent. We have not been crushed. We are survivors. We will fight to the death. God, point us in the right direction. God's like, okay, listen, calm down, big fella. Calm down. We're going to go for a walk. Now let's head down toward the Red Sea. We're just going to, we're just going to walk. We don't need to fight. 
We're not going to fight. That's not the plan. It's not the way. It's not the way of the promised land. It's not the way of heaven. It's a fascinating concept, right? If you look at it and you really look at it, what if God didn't want any war? What if God didn't want any battles? I know, I know a lot of you are like freaking out, but Bob, I know. Just stick with the story for now. He took them away from battle. He's like, listen, if you go into battle and people actually start dying, I know your heart. I know you're all fired up. But listen, you may change your mind and go back to what? Another master. Because masters, like it or not, masters are are easy living. You don't have to think. Just do what you're told. You don't have to live. You don't have to live. You have to survive. You don't have to to, um, take care of yourself. Because the master does that for you. And whatever he provides, you are thankful for. Because if he didn't provide it, you'd have nothing. This is not the way of heaven. And it's not the way you're going to learn to live. And the only way to learn to live is to go on a journey. I'm going to take you on a journey. We're going to head south. And we're going to move together. God knew, listen, if... You have great motives. I, I I love the fact that you're willing to live for me and die for me and fight for me, and that's awesome. Now that you're free, I get it. You've been dedicated to me for years. You've remained separated from the from the Egyptians, but you're you've created a another set of bondage things out of religion, and and I need you to be free of this. I need you to get to know me. You need to trust me. And not just who I am, but who you are and who I say you are. And that takes time. And not just time, but it takes conversation. And even even as the plagues began to show the people that God was somebody they could trust to protect them, as slaves, they at some level believed that they were earning these blessings from a master. And they must be willing to give their lives to this master in order to show the master that they are worthy of more protection God and Moses had a long journey in front of them. And I really believe that Moses understood this as well. He he understood because it took him, I think, 40 years to untangle himself from the 40 years he had spent in Egypt. He had spent 40 years in Egypt really learning how to be a leader slash dictator. One who, who creates fear and manipulates the behavior of people in order to you know, quote, do the right thing. And he had to learn differently. And he did. And now he's put in a position of leadership and he's looking at God and the two of them are having conversation. And he's like, wow, they are like, literally they need the, oh, oh how are we ever going to do this? Like they need the same journey, but now every individual needs their own journey so that corporately they're all on a different, you know, all end up at the same place. This is a huge journey. And I know that a lot of churches go through this. A lot of churches need need change. And unfortunately, pastors often in some sort of hierarchical mindset, pyramid, pyramid paradigm, say, okay, we're going to make a change. And they make like, we'll just call it structural differences, changes. And they think at some level this is going to change everything, but it doesn't. It just changes what people do. It doesn't change who people are, and people need to change who they are when they come to church. We've created a generation of people who come to church to be told how to become better Christians. By the mere structure of a Sunday morning service, we tell everyone the person with the microphone, no matter how often we change the person on the microphone, or the variety that's on the microphone, we say you need to stare at the stage and learn something today because if you don't learn it from us, you'll never get it anywhere else. That's why you need to keep coming here and pay for your ticket. I mean, sorry, and give your tithe so that you're entertained and left inspired. All right, enough commentary on the church. But it's the same mindset. Moses needed... And God needed these people to be on a journey, not a war. So in verse 19, 
we just get a little picture of the fact that Moses remembered the, the promise to Joseph from 400 years ago. 400 years ago, and he remembered. And I'm sure the people had kept it alive as well, that Joseph wanted to be taken to the promised land when they left. So Moses picked him up and brought him. And, and yes, archaeologists have found things that they believe were the tombs of the 12 brothers, including one that was, you know, Egyptian in style and had a sarcophagus that is very similar to that of the pharaohs. And they believe that was, pharaoh, that was Joseph's burial place. And then it talks about, um, in verse 20, after leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. And neither the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night has let, you know, left its place in front of the people. So the pillars not only left guidance, but they also were shade during the day and warmth at night because it does get cold in the desert at night. And visually, any, any you know, uh, the true leader would be seen all the time. It was a reminder that God was the one that they were following. Yes, you know, Moses was the human leader. Moses was the one that, you know, they, they at this point could talk to, but God was the one who was leading them. This was an opportunity for God to be seen as a caring father, not an abusive master who would leave them to wander. He was somebody who was going to be with them. He was somebody who already showed them that they that he could be trusted as somebody who could protect, somebody who was powerful and could and could perform miraculous signs, but he was also a God who could be with them. It was something that would set them up for their for their journey on and around Mount Sinai to get to know God even better. It was a journey to a new life and a new mindset. And God wanted the journey to be slow. And it wasn't just for them that he wanted, you know, he also wanted, really, he wanted Pharaoh to be free. He wanted Pharaoh's freedom as well. He constantly invited Moses, uh, Pharaoh into freedom. God is always a God of freedom, not just for you, but for everyone. So the journey to the promised land would be one that would take some time, but it was designed to build relationship with God. He did not want his people just to switch masters. And again, so many times it's so much easier to do that. How many times have you heard a gospel message preached in which they're like, come to Jesus, come to the altar, give your life to him, be free, be free, be free. And as soon as you, you, know, you, you do that, then we want you to, <clears throat> we basically want you to enslave yourself to the church. We want you to serve, serve, serve. What does that sound like? Sound like servants. God doesn't want you to be a servant. He wants you to be a son. Do sons do things? Absolutely. I worked hard for my father. Why? I loved him. I, I know Bill Johnson has said this. I don't know who originated it, but he's like, way more gets done by love than by a shove. And it's true. It's true. Slaves will get stuff done, but sons will get way more done. Many things will get done. Well, if you're, if you're beating on somebody, way more will get done if you love somebody. God's like, listen, I'm not here to beat you. I'm here to, I'm here for so that you understand who you are. And, and I, want to, I want to immerse you in this journey with opportunities to get to know me. I've already shown you so much about me in Egypt. Now I want to show you things on the road. And one of the first things he does is he's like, I'm going to show you that not only do I provide leadership in the pillar, but I provide comfort for those who follow me. Shade during the day and warmth at night. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And this journey continues next week on <laughs> The Epic Narrative. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Looking forward to seeing you again. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts. Hey, check one. Check, check, check. 
You ever been at, you ever been at mic checks? Those things are always always fun. I don't know. I find them I find them humorous, especially those who seem to know exactly the tone that they want from their microphone. I don't know, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of one guy in particular. <laughs> I just remember and and it wasn't even like a big concert stuff. Like this was like church stuff and and this guy would just man, he'd stand at the mic and go Check, 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 and then he'd he'd tell the sound guy, bring down the uh, da 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 da, check, check, check one, check one. No, that's a that work on this a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Oh my gosh, the mic check would go like whatever. Seemed like it seemed like at least five to six minutes of him just doing that, which. Just seemed, uh, yeah, ridiculous in a in a church auditorium for what he was going to do. But you know what? The guy knows knew what he wanted, and he was a and is a talented musician. So, who am I? It's not a it's not a criticism, guys. It's not a criticism. It's just an observation. Just uh, hey hey, these are Bob thoughts. These are Bob. These are my. Th- all right, all right. I'll move on. All right, I listened uh, as I listened to this week's <laughs> episode. Oh my, uh, my engineer Bob is like, I, I really can't believe you're you're going to leave that in. I am going to leave that in. Why not? The odds of that guy listening to my podcast at this time hearing that he probably wouldn't even know I was talking about him. <laughs> oh, all right. Um, this week I listened and I thought I I I. Uh, I don't know. I I, want, I got done with the episode. And I thought, man, the whole thing was kind of like a Bob thoughts. I don't know if I really covered the point I was trying to make, which is one of the reasons why I have these Bob thoughts at the end. And that is the point that I was trying to make was that this passage talks about the the sacrifice of the firstborn sons of the nation of Israel, and many times. Uh, Academics look at that passage and they say, this is God calling for human sacrifice. And, and academically, and lit- you know, using the literature and the tone, it is, it is a, a, a legitimate argument for them to, for them to make. And, and that's what I wanted to, to show you, so that you would interact with it and get comfortable with it so that if someone ever brought it up to you, you could sit back and say, yes, I, I know what passage you're talking about. And no, it's not a human sacrifice that the Lord's calling for. It is, it is a, a separation, an acknowledgement that the firstborn son would be dedicated to the perpetuation, per- 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 propelling, perpetuating, he would continue to train and bring up the rest of the, the siblings in the ways of Yahweh. That was what it was about. It was about the, the, the perpetuation of, of, the, of the Hebrew religious and, and um, cultural uh, culture, the, the, all of it. The firstborn son had that dedication. He was going to be trained. He was going to know the, uh, well, we, we would call the Torah. At the time, the Torah didn't exist, but he would be trained in all of the oral traditions, all of the, all of the stories of, of Abraham and Isaac and, and Joseph and, and uh, Ishmael and Rebekah. Like all of that would be, tr- would be poured into the firstborn son. He would have extra training so that he could then pour into his siblings and train the family and keep the family on track so that when he had children, the same would be done. It, it's, it's a beautiful way to perpetuate things through conversation and relationship and family. And remember, their family units were not separated like the Western culture is. Our family units, even if families live near each other, the units are generally in their own houses, maybe in the same area. Maybe they can all get together for meals and see each other, football games or whatever, but but we're still in individualized housing, generally speaking. 
the culture of their day would not have had that. You would have had multiple generations. So you would have had multiple firstborn sons <clears throat> giving encouragement and support to the new firstborn sons on the things they needed to know and the things that they would and how they would get to know it and how they would learn it and how they'd memorize it so that the culture would be perpetuated. And that's what I wanted you to see and hear. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, it was, it was, when I listened to it, I thought I was not that clear. So I hope that clears things up. And also, uh, as always, I just want to prepare you for life outside of biblical culture. I, I have seen multiple Christians who were trained by churches, youth groups or homeschooled or whatever. They were trained to repeat things. They were trained to mimic, <clears throat> to be uh, just, they, they didn't, they weren't trained how to think. They were trained to just answer questions. This is what you say, you know, if somebody who doesn't believe the Bible says this, you just say this. They don't know why they're saying it. They just were told. And and I've seen them eviscerated by, by academics. In, in the case I'm thinking of, like I sat in a uh, world religions class at, at uh, West Virginia State uh, University. I was continuing my education, and I, I loved. I, I have always enjoyed interacting with other philosophies and other religions because I figure if my faith can't handle it, then I've got issues, and so I've always enjoyed it. So I sat in this class. And oh man, was the professor good, man. He he uh he set up those Christians. It was like he knew they were there. And they probably were every year or every semester. And he'd sit there and he'd he'd throw out a few things and you could see them starting to fidget. And I said, I was older because it was technically 10 years after I was out of college, and I thought, oh no. And sure enough, he just set them up in these sweet youth group kids, you know, 18, 19 years old, they're like spouting back the answer that the professor knew was coming. And I thought their youth pastor told them this is how to answer it. Like they read, I know the book they read to get this answer. And he just destroyed them. And I thought, wow, that's just, that's just not good. We need to be better prepared. Not not to fight back, but to have the conversation. To not be afraid of these kind of passages and, or be surprised by them. So I, I hope that's, if, if you didn't get it during the episode, I hope you understand it now. And uh, I look forward to talking to you guys next week. Till then, always check, check, check your mic and make sure you sound good. Have a good day, everyone. everyone thanks for listening if you like what you heard you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use you can also reach out to bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com see you next week guys